Well, today we will continue our uh, sermon series uh, on the letters from the book of Revelation. We do have two readings this morning. The first one comes from the gospel according to Matthew, uh, and then the second one, of course, will be that letter from the book of Revelation. The words are not going to be on the screens. Uh, The reason for this is just to invite you uh, to allow the word of God to be read over you, to be read to you, thinking about how the early Christians, when they gathered together, uh, they didn't have their own copies of the scriptures. They would gather hungry to hear that word, and they would come, uh, and they would sit, and they would breathe it in uh, like the air. So let us listen now. These are the words of the Lord Jesus from the gospel according to Matthew. Do not, be, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Our second reading is the third letter in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 2, reading verses 12 through 17. These are the words of the risen Jesus. Uh, within the vision given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives... But I do have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth." Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give you some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. We are, as Everett pointed out, in our third letter in the book of Revelation. And the letter itself is interesting. Bit of a tone change from the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, To give you a little bit of a heads up, I don't know if the letter to Pergamum could be written today. I think its writer might well be canceled by a culture that is going to have a hard time with it. And so what this does is this gives us a beautiful occasion to to step back into the Gospels and to deal with 
some of Jesus' other words on this very same subject. And, and I think that what we, what we ought to do with the letter to Pergamum looming in the background, and we'll deal with it, we'll walk through it. But I want to explore for a while Matthew 7, the final chapter of the great Sermon on the Mount, and this famous phrase, don't judge, so that you won't be judged. That phrase is employed in many different ways. Um, sometimes it's a way of trying to get people off our own back. Oftentimes we'll, we'll pull this phrase out when we, we feel that the church is living up to a less than savory reputation as just being a little harsh. We have to grapple with what is Jesus actually calling us to. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. And I think as, a, as a, maybe a, a helpful way of teasing out the complexity that this statement brings, um, I have here what's known as a, it's a little paper that was put out by an organization known as the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And I believe these guys are in the Idaho area. Its main writer is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. These, this is an organization where they bring in serious scholarship, both Christian and non-Christian, to explore contemporary questions of human sexuality. And they've put out this paper as a gift to churches saying, doesn't matter if you live on the West Coast, the East Coast, or somewhere in between, you're going to have to deal with some of these issues very seriously, very soon. Sooner than you would think, or many of you have been dealing with them for maybe even decades. But this particular paper is titled, Guidance for Churches on Membership, Baptism, Communion, Service, and Leadership for Trans People taking up the issue of transgenderism in the church. And I'm just going to read you a couple of lines to illustrate the complexity of that statement. So uh, most of the paper is, uh, is setting up the problem and helping you understand um, things that you may think are, are simpler than they are, but as it, is, as it tends to be when you get into it, things become rather complex. But here's one statement from this paper's writer, and this is something that, that he, he wants churches to understand. And so, suspend your agreement or disagreement for a little bit because I'm reading it out of context, but I just need you to hear it. He says, experiencing gender dysphoria is not a sin. That is, feeling an unwanted sense of distress over your biological sex is not a sin, is not a sin to suffer from a psychological condition. What we do with this experience could lead to sin, but the experience itself is not sin. Therefore, I see no biblical reason for withholding membership, baptism, or other church practices from someone simply because they experience gender dysphoria. Okay? He says on another page, he goes headlong into the question of pronouns. Everyone loves a good conversation about pronouns. So again... Written to churches. By the way, the authors of this paper, the contributors of this paper, are altogether orthodox, conservative Christians. But they are, they are bringing in a lot of research and they're asking complicated questions so that we can, as a, as a family of faith, handle this as best as possible. He says this. He says, another question with potential ethical implications is whether Christians should use a trans person's pronouns and chosen name. 
In other words, if a biological male identifies as female, should you use the name they've chosen for themselves or their birth name? And which pronouns should you use? The set that matches their biological sex, in this case, he, him, or the one that matches their gender identity, in this case, she, her? Or what if a trans person identifies with they, them pronouns rather than he, him, or she, her? Is that okay? Is it even grammatically correct? And what about other recently minted pronouns like they or here? These are tough questions, and committed Christians disagree on what to do. And before I read the next few lines, I would bet my left arm that there is anything but uniform agreement in this room as to how to handle that question. There is a wide multitude in a room of people who love Jesus on how to address this particular issue. What does it look like to not judge so that we won't be judged? He continues, some say that it's a lie to use a person's pronoun that doesn't reflect their biological sex. Others say that using their pronouns is an act of Christian hospitality, meeting another person where they're at, even if you disagree. I discussed this issue at length in my book and have come to believe that in most situations it would be better for Christians to use someone's chosen pronouns and especially their name. Now again, none of us have the right to agree or disagree with him because we haven't read everything else that he said. But those few snippets out of this lengthy paper, which is a distillation of piles of research, illustrate the complexity of that statement. What does it mean to not judge? Well, um, the reason that I think that the letter to the church in Pergamum would be difficult to write today is because it hits us square between the eyes with the question of, what does it mean to be tolerant? What does it mean to be tolerant? Tolerance is something every one of us has a thought about. For many of us, it's a deeply personal thing. It may be personal to us because we have felt that some have been intolerant to us. It may be personal to us because some has been intolerant to one we love. It may be personal to us because we've seen tolerance run amok lead to the destruction of someone we love. It's extremely relevant. It's a question that is constantly being messed with and it's one that makes all of us, I think if we're quite honest, kind of nervous. Makes us kind of nervous. But uh, while, we, while we kind of hold off landing the plane there, let's just remind ourselves that it's fine that you and I don't have this worked out perfectly and that we are going to make mistakes because one of the things that the letter to the, per the church in Pergamum reminds us right off the bat is that Jesus is the perfect judge. You and I will often fail to see things clearly. You and I will often think we know what's going on when we don't. But there is one resounding feature of the letters to the churches in Revelation. It's that Jesus knows, he sees it clearly, and his judgment will be right. His judgment will be final, and his judgment will be good. He says in verse 12, Write to the angel of the church of Pergamum, Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is why I think this letter has a different tone 
than the other letters thus far. To the, to, to the church in Ephesus, he says, hey, it's me. I'm the one holding the churches in my hands. And then to the, letter, to the church in Smyrna, he says, it's me. I'm the one who conquered death. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I'm here. And to the church in Pergamum, he says, it's me. I'm standing over you with a double-edged sword ready to judge. It's a different letter. The tone is much different. And we can trust his judgment, and we can trust that it is going to be for the best. But this has been a feature of Jesus' ministry, is to insist that he alone is the perfect judge. In, in John chapter 5, as he's debating with some religious leaders, Jesus is pointing to his own authority to judge. He says, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, okay? I'm, I'm still working out what that means. At least I know that Jesus is the ultimate judge. So do I just resign myself to that judgment and let the chips fall where they may? Am I just a passive participant in this whole thing called life as the body of Christ? Initially, we, we encountered this judge seeing what's true for this church and we have to remind ourselves that as we reverse engineer his, his, his commendation, the positive side of his message to the church in Pergamum, we understand something that Jesus values. He says, when there's external opposition, what does it require? It requires your faithfulness. External opposition, opposition from without, opposition from the world requires a faithful response. And that's what he commends. He says this, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, that's a charged statement. It's not like, I know where you live and I'm going to come get you. He's like, I know where you live and I know it's hard. What is Satan's throne? Pergamum had a strong reputation in the ancient world. One thing it was known for is it had the second largest library in the ancient world. Alexandria, of course, had the big famous one. But Pergamum, in, like, in this time period, had a library of 200,000 scrolls, I guess. I don't know. Copies of stuff. An incredible library. But it was not just a, a, like an educational center. It was a, a place of religious pilgrimage. A place of, so they, they had all these temples. It was one of the most religiously ornate places in Asia Minor. And they look at this and, and it's like, okay, as a Christian living in this time, there's the temple up there to, to Demeter the agricultural God. There's a temple to Zeus, the God of all gods. There's a temple to, or actually it's like a whole complex, a healing complex, to, to the God Asclepius, who is famous for being the one that can just heal, offer miraculous healings, so I can take care of my crops. I can worry about a lot of things in terms of demons with this God, and, and I, can, I can take care of my health. We have the goddess of wisdom and war, Athena. We have temples over here. Pergamum was known as being the first place in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to erect a temple to the emperor Trajan, which would then morph into what became known as the imperial cult. You see, over time, as the Roman emperors um, became known as Caesars, they, they started to take on divinity 
At least that's what they felt, and that's what their adherents felt. And so the part of being a, a citizen of the Roman Empire is that we would have places of worship to worship the, the imperial cult, and you would offer sacrifices and burn incense. So you're a Christian in Pergamum. You follow the Jesus who, who makes the rain fall on the just and unjust, and yet there is this incredible cultural pressure to go worship the god Demeter. You know who it is that makes war and makes peace, ultimately, finally, and yet there's the temple to Athena. You know that Jesus is God over any other so-called gods, and yet there's Zeus standing triumphantly over an incredible pressure to, to conform. Jesus was not the first um, being in the ancient world to take on the title Lord and Savior. He stole that from Caesar. And I think he does a better job of it than Caesar. But it was Caesar's nevertheless, and we have the imperial cult that we will be your Lord and we will be your Savior. We will deliver the peace of Rome at the end of the sword. And I'm following Jesus. And if you are a Christian in first century Pergamum, to follow Jesus well costs you something. It costs Antipas his life, the only named martyr in Revelation. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, your brother and my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So Jesus commends their faithfulness. And, and in fact, you, you wonder if they are reminded of Jesus' encouragement from John 16 where he's promised all these things to come to his disciples. And he says, by the way, I've told you everything so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, you guys in Pergamum too, but be courageous, for I have conquered the world. And Jesus commends them for that. So there's an element of the church of Pergamum where you and I get to do a little bit of cultural analysis on our own and see what other divinities, so to speak, are vying for our attention and for our allegiance. But that's all out there. And that external opposition requires our faithfulness, and difficult though that may be, it is still nevertheless rather clear. It's the turn in the letter. It's the rebuke in the letter that gets really complicated. He says in Revelation 2, 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So those names are likely familiar, but maybe you, you, you haven't read the story in a lot of time. I don't know how many of us are doing our daily devotions out of the book of Numbers, but Balaam was a prophet for hire as the Israelites were coming around the bottom of the, the south end of the Dead Sea and coming up on the eastern shore along the mountain ridges there, and they were going to cross over the River Jordan. There's this king in Moab who hears that these guys are just running roughshod through all the other kingdoms over here, and we need to get a prophet to go and curse the Israelites so that it's not going to happen to us here in Moab. So King Balak goes to the prophet for hire, wants you to go curse the Israelites. And then a talking donkey gets involved. And it is truly one of the most hilarious stories in the Old Testament. 
But Balaam, try though he, though he may, he, he cannot help but bless the Israelites. God will not let him curse them. He only blesses them three times. And you can imagine Balak's frustration. But that's not what Balaam is actually known for in perpetuity. He's known for, especially in Hebrew circles, for what he did after that. Because then, as he has blessed the Israelites and they, they make their way through, he spends some time among them and he just leads people into adultery, into sexual immorality. And from that point forward, Balaam's name becomes a synonym for one who leads God's people astray, either overtly into adultery or more broadly speaking into idolatry. To say one is a proponent of the teaching of Balaam is, is no kind phrase to offer someone. And Jesus says, you have some in your church who are doing this. You've done a great job staying faithful um, uh, amidst the, pro- the, the persecution or the opposition that's coming from outside the church. But from within, you're, you're putting up with stuff. If I can use the word, you're tolerating sin And I'm convinced that the overwhelming biblical testimony is that when it comes to sin from within the church, the Lord is unbelievably intolerant. Don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but the Lord is intolerant. He removes two sinful beings from his presence in the Garden of Eden, he floods the world, he disciplines his people. Sends them into slavery, into exile. But the most intolerant thing I can think about God is that he saw fit to have his son crucified on a cross. It does not seem that God is in the business of tolerating sin. Now, he might be forbearing and he might be patient, but he is rather intolerant when it comes to the sins of the people who claim to follow him. And he says to the church here, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. That's something he has against them. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That group came up in in the letter to the church at Ephesus. We don't quite know what they taught. One thing that we can safely conclude, whether this group of teachers who who follow after the ways of Balaam are literally leading people into adultery or more broadly speaking, leading them into idolatry, it seems that this group of teachers from within the church of Pergamum is leading the people astray and making them look more and more like those out there, like the world and not like Christ. So when we, when we roll it back, if Jesus is frustrated with this and he rebukes them, if we roll it back into the Sermon on the Mount, that gives some greater context for Jesus' instructions in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Got it. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the sa- with the same measure you use. Noted. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Okay, we're all bad, no judging. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, here's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. Okay, we cannot be hypocritical. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye. And then, you will see clearly, so that you can leave the speck in their eye, 
in the name of tolerance. No, wait, hold on. <laughs> then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The judgment Jesus challenges here is hypocritical judgment. The judgment Jesus challenges us with here is judgment that does not actually love but just wants to criticize and does not actually do so from a position of personal holiness and righteousness. It's, it's a judgment that holds others accountable without holding ourselves accountable. And Jesus says, do not judge like that. Instead, take care of your own house. But then that splinter in your brother's eye Don't leave it there. Now he says, he continues in in verse 15, dealing with those who might take that to the next level of false teaching. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. It's kind of like a Dr. Seuss thing going on. Um, Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. So all that to say is you'll be able to tell if these are destructive people within the community of faith. And you have an option there to let Jesus be the one that cuts that tree down and throw it into the fire. But in the name of tolerance, that does not seem very loving. To just resign yourself to silence and to acceptance so-called is just to kind of kick the can down the road and they will be judged with fire by the perfect judge we've met in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. So I wonder if... Jesus is concerned with those who teach according to Balaam, those who teach according to the Nicolaitans, is that the people, the other people in the church have not cared for them by rebuking them and begging them to repent. This is a common theme in Matthew's gospel because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus picks up the subject again. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if you won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So I I wonder, and and this can feel severe, but again, I, I think Pergamum merits this kind of language external opposition requires our faithfulness, internal idolatry. I think requires intolerance. Now, I'm not saying cruelty. I'm not saying that we do it without forbearance and patience or with a lack of grace. But Jesus wants his people to be holy. Be holy because I, your Father, am holy. And he constantly talks through the New Testament. The New Testament just seems to take up at almost every turn, how to deal with unholiness in the body of believers. 
And maybe this just doesn't seem too extreme or severe to you. And it's like, well, if someone were at Sunnybrook leading others into pagan worship, we'd, we'd of course deal with that. And we want to deal with sexual immorality. And we, want to de- we would definitely deal with murder and other such serious sins. But as I went through the New Testament and pulled all of the vice lists, these are lists that the apostles give us of things that they are concerned about and that need to be rooted out of the church, I was shocked at how many things were on the vice lists that I tolerate, that we tolerate. Because to be frank, when compared to murder or adultery, they just seem kind of benign. And yet Paul, Peter, the apostles, considered them deadly to the community of faith. Such extreme things like pride, this is personal inventory time. If, if it's our, our task to, to deal with sin in the community, as Matthew 7 teaches us anything, it's that we need to do some personal reflection first. Are you a prideful person? Do you tolerate pride in yourself? Licentiousness, which is just a fun way of saying, yeah, I know that's true, and I know that I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to anyway. Like, God will be fine. We'll sort this one out later. Licentiousness. Do you make excuses for yourself? Do you excuse others? Are you an envious or a jealous person? Paul considers that a matter of deep concern. Are you a quarrelsome person? Another thing that Paul's very concerned with, especially given his love and obsession for the unity of the church. Are you a quarrelsome person? Do you tolerate anger in yourself? Are you a lover of money? See, all of these things, I, I, these wouldn't have made my vice list. Are you an arrogant person? This one's interesting, especially given the season we're heading into. Are you an ungrateful person? Paul challenges that spirit rather deeply. And then this last one, uh, last week I got to, to talking with some of the other guys on staff, and this one may be the easiest one to excuse or to describe in more um, sanitized terms. Are you a greedy person? You don't have to be incredibly wealthy in order to be greedy. Are you a greedy person? It's interesting that in some of his lists, Paul will condemn like murderers and fornicators and adulterers and greedy people. And, all, and I'm like, hold on, greedy people. In that list, he puts greedy there. You see, what I worry about is that I, I don't teach whatever Balaam taught. And I don't, I'm pretty sure I've never taught what the Nicolaitans taught. But these things slip in. And, and I wonder how easy it is for not only me to be okay with them in me, but for you to tolerate them in me. That's just Ryan. He's kind of proud of himself. That probably merits a conversation, actually. 
And complicated though that conversation may be, I believe it is born out of love and ought to be done in love, as we'll see here in just a second. But one of the reasons that I'm really concerned that some of these more benign-looking sins are just left untreated and undealt with is because sin has a tendency to snowball and to slide. And you can see with some degree of consistency this pattern that happens in people's lives. And so this is the, 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 the simplest I've been able to kind of boil it down. But if you go to that next slide, today we will tolerate certain sins. But then we grow accustomed to tolerating them and, and, and we, we're somewhat desensitized to how much offense they may provide the Lord because tomorrow we will condone them. First we put up with them and then we're okay with them. But then soon enough, we will celebrate them. I see this all the time. Whatever we're willing to put up with today will just be considered okay tomorrow, and soon enough, we will have parades for them. In a span of 500 years, some scientific naturalists and those who had large economic interests in designing things a certain way created the modern concept of race. We'll put up with that. And you start to create hierarchies of races. We'll put up with it until we condone it, until soon enough we're celebrating massive economies that are built on the back of forced labor, creating categories of human and subhuman, totally demeaning the image of God in mankind. Because we tolerate until we condone, until we celebrate. And for the last 150 years, we are, we are, we are reaping the, the, the windfall of that slide when it came to race, especially in the United States. I could walk through that process with so many societal sins, but I worry that they happen in a much more subtle way within the fellowship here with things like pride or greed. Now, One note on our tone and our attitude. Jesus is the perfect judge, gets to come in swinging his double-edged sword. You and I have to play a little bit of a different game as we work this out. What does it mean to be intolerant of sin as imperfect people who have a hard time often seeing things clearly? Well, the New Testament has this incredible section, a number of them actually, where Our intolerance is wrapped in love. In fact, our tolerance is probably unloving because it just resigns people to the judgment of their creator. But our intolerance, when wrapped in love and calling people to repentance, produces the fruit of the gospel in people's lives. It's incredible and it's transformative. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the great love chapters, nestled in between two sections on exercising spiritual gifts within the body of believers, Paul says famously, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It goes on to say it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. So I want to point out 
That whenever we encounter questions like this paper raises on what does it look like to best care for for those who are are working through whatever it is they are, it's not that we just browbeat them. Intolerance is not unflinching rigidity. Biblical intolerance is holding firm to the truth and exercising incredible amounts of grace and humility. Because in Romans 12, the great transformative chapter coming on the heels of Paul's magnum opus, and then you have this, therefore be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says this, let love be without hypocrisy. He's poking back into Matthew 7 there. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit and serve the Lord. If you feel that this paper, the the short sections that I read, was sounding a bit soft, just listen to, this won't be on the screens, but just listen to everything else that Paul says about how to, to, to detest evil and cling to what is good. He continues, rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord, the one with the two-edged sword here in the church of Pergamum. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So as complex as it might sound to say that the Bible calls for, within the body of believers, an intolerant approach to sin, you bathe it in all of this love and grace. And if we follow Romans 12 to its natural end, real gospel transformation can then occur. And finally, Jesus rewards the faithful and he will judge the faithless. In Revelation 2, 16 and 17, Jesus says, Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He doesn't say that he's going to fight against the church. He says he's going to fight against the false teachers. It's like Jesus is saying, in effect, if you won't do Matthew 18, church discipline, well, I'll come do it for you. Which, again, sounds kind of hateful to just serve someone up like that to this kind of judge. We'll get it right. But man, what if we had called them to repent? Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name that is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. It sounds a lot like in Matthew 25, Jesus says several times to his faithful servants who have done what is right in his absence, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little, I will now make you in charge over much. And uh, 
John Chrysostom, the fourth century preacher, famous, his name actually means John the Golden-Tongued, um, so I always kind of say it's like the fourth century version of Drew Moss. Um, John Chrysostom dealing with the church's need to, to tackle these little things for the overall benefit of the body. He says, faithfulness in little things is a big thing. Amen.